Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. If you're looking to throw some optics on your turkey gun this spring, look no further than the Vortex Defender ST. This is the red dot we're going to be running this season. We're excited about it. This thing's built like a tank, super lightweight, super long battery life, everything you need in a good turkey red dot. And if you want to get a discount on that red dot or any other Vortex Optic, go to eurooptic.com and use the code SGN10 to get a discount. That's eurooptic.com, code SGN10. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the EcoWild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar. May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you. And we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoors Podcast. We're coming at you from the Mobile Hunters Expo here in our little booth space we got going on. We're doing something a little different today. We're going to be uh, talking to people, a bunch of different people, kind of like a lightning round about what makes them a successful deer hunter. So, uh, Jacob, how you doing? Oh, doing well. Doing well. Super excited to be here in Chattanooga, Tennessee at the Mobile Hunters Expo. But first, we got our buddy Jacob Emery joining us. Emery? Emery. My bad. God. Can you believe this, dude? I, mean, I can't I, believe you have a podcast. <laughs> I know. I, I can't listen, even talk. You're, yeah, you're like, man, I can't even talk. I can't have my own podcast. I'm like, dude, I can't talk either, dude. Listen, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Jacob can't talk. I can't spell. Or yeah. do math. Jacob. Or, or read. <laughs> I can read. Okay. <laughs> I've been practicing my words, and I'm getting good. We talked about Jacob last night and said he could sell women to a man that doesn't like women. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, we don't need to go there, but yeah. Yep, yep. I'm sure, I'm sure that was a fun conversation. Oh, I bet it was. See, I should have been over there, but we, we had a late dinner last night. But, Jacob, get you on the podcast. So this is going to be a very interesting podcast episode because this is something that I've been wanting to do for a while, and this is the perfect format for us to do it because there's so many successful hunters here. Yourself, you know, you're a very humble guy, but you kill the hell some big deer, okay? Megan's. I, I want to talk to you, and we're talk to every guest about this, is like, if you were to summarize everything that you've done, what's helped you become as successful as you have as you're continuing to grow to become even a better whitetail hunter? Okay, so it's almost like two things for me. I've been thinking about this. <clears throat> you know, I, I've got three kids, wife at home. Um, so the big thing is to put yourself in high uh, – give yourself a high chance of success, okay? So two things I do is I'm not going to hunt the days that just aren't – you know, they're not going to produce. You know what I mean? Hunt. If you, especially going out of state. Like, I don't want to go out of state and hunt the first two weeks of October. You know what I mean? Like, if I'm going to go out of state, it's going to be the first couple of days or it's going to be, like, during the rut where I've got a chance of a good buck coming by. Uh, I want to spend the most of my time at the house to keep her happy, be around the kids, you know, and go in when it's time to kill. Uh, and the big thing for me, I think recently in the last couple of years, is I put myself in a position to where I have – I make the deer come close. Like – I'm all about pinch points now. And I, I guess I didn't realize I was doing it for years. But, like, especially, like, using water access and whatnot in the places I hunt is, like, I make the deer pinch down to where when it is the rut or whatnot or they're going to food in early season, they're going to come close to me, mm-hmm. you know, and give myself a high chance of getting that shot. And I, I think that's been the reason I've been seeing more deer and better deer and making the shot count. I, I got a question. So, uh Back, like, when I was in college or whatever, I could hunt a lot, right? Right. You, I mean, you can go hunt all the time. And now, now I've got a full-time job, a podcast, a wife, and a baby. So, obviously, I don't get to hunt as much anymore. So, kind of like what you're talking about, only going on high-odds days. But do you feel like when you got more restricted with your, your time, you know, you can't spend as much time out there, do you feel like that almost kind of helped you a little bit where now you're doing, like, only high-odds stuff and it makes you kind of focus more? Because when I got to hunt a lot, dude, there's a lot. I look back, and there's a lot of throwaway hunts where I'm like, mm-hmm. whatever, I'll just go again tomorrow. I'm just going to go out here and hope I see something. Yeah. Whereas if you've got only got a little bit of time, you're planning more, you're more detail-oriented, mm-hmm. and you're going to be more sharp in the woods. Yeah. And I, I think that's huge. There's something to that, but especially about being more sharp in the woods because I think some people may not have experiences just because you haven't had, had the opportunity because of work and family to be able to go out and spend a ton of time hunting. But when you do, like you go on like a week-long trip – if you're hunting super hard every single day, by day four or five, you start mentally making errors. Yep. And that can, that yeah. can make the difference between you bumping a deer, you potentially even um, you know, making an opportunity or even just screwing up an opportunity before it ever even happens by like taking a, a shortcut going there where mm-hmm. you should have taken a longer route in order to get in clean. Um, and that kind of goes back to what you're saying is the whole idea of not putting so much pressure on yourself of I've got to hunt every single day possible, but waiting to conditions right, make sure you're mentally ready. But also I think a lot of that comes with experience as well. I almost would say as a new person going into the, the woods hunting, it would be super difficult, I think, in order to do what we're talking about here if you don't have the experience of how to go about handling different situa- situations and and also have the skill set to get to that point. But, like, compare, like, what you were doing, like, early on and, and kind of, like, you know, focusing on, especially more recently, these high days of hunting. What was, like, the biggest learning curve early? Like, when you were looking back, say, like, 10 years ago, what were some of those mistakes you were making now that you're trying to, like, work out? If not, you've completely worked out your system. Access. 100%. Like, yeah. I would just – like, I look at a spot that I want to go hunt, and I'm walking straight to it, and you can't do that. Like, you might get lucky in the rut, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it happens a lot. 
But, like, you've got to watch where you're walking. You've got to watch where the deer can see and smell you. Like, that's my biggest thing using water access a lot is, like, I'm keeping myself out of the sight of the deer at all times. You know, I'm using creeks, rivers, drainages, even, like, a ditch that's, like, you know, five feet tall because I'm only, like, four foot five. (laughs) So I always heard short guys are better at deer hunting. That's right. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) You meet some killers, it's always a little old All these six-foot dudes think they're tough crap until they get busted in the tree. (laughs) (laughs) At Hunter Hogan. (laughs) Well, uh, oh, he kills all kinds of deer. I'm not nowhere near his level. But attention to access, is it's just huge, man. Like, um, for instance, the Indiana buck I killed a couple years ago. You know, I'm going up this creek at gray light uh, because it rained that morning. And from the creek, I'm hitting a ditch. I'm following the ditch. And out of the ditch, I'm jumping straight into a slough with water uh, in my dry shots and, and walking the water edge until I come out of the water. And I've got, like, the thermals pulling towards the sun. The sun's behind me. The water's behind me. Everything is pulling right to that area. And, like, I felt really good about that day, and it happened. You know what I mean? Like, just being really careful where I walk and where I'm not showing myself to the deer has been – it's paid off a lot. Yeah, man. Awesome. What about the pinch point thing that you mentioned? Can you dive a little bit deeper into that? You said you said that's something you, you've been inadvertently doing for a long time. Can you explain that a little bit more? So, like features that mm-hmm. are going to make the deer. Like, take, for example, the same hunt I'm talking about. Um, that area, I think I might have actually showed Jacob this area. So, you've got this slough uh, that can be super wet or it can drop just a little bit um it's right up next to an ag field so these deer are coming off this ag field at night and going back through and bottomlands deer just could bed anywhere there's a little bit of cane thicket down there but i've got this creek behind me i've got this slough in front of me and it's like a 75 yard i call it the island Mm -hmm. and these deer like during the rut are cruising back and forth avoiding the water avoiding crossing the creek you know and they feel super safe doing it right there because of all the water around them you know the more the more water I feel like you put between you and like the road and whatnot, or just other access points, it's like the deer uh, act like deer back there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but something else like a pinch point that I like to use is like a super steep hill, like leading up to like maybe another real steep hill or another body of water. The deer aren't going to like hit that super hard incline just to avoid going around that flat spot. Like that's a great spot that I put trail cameras. I have a lot of success, like getting good pictures there, deer traveling back and forth. Um, but yeah, awesome. Is that something? Also, by the way, early season is that something you uh, focus on as pinch points, or just not? Really? I don't focus on them as much now. If I find like a golden opportunity, mm-hmm. you know what I mean. Like that's that's just when the stars align, especially like hunting like early season, like I do, like early September. Like if you can find a pinch point where they're coming to food in daylight, like oh my god, yeah, like, I can't even start talking about it right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, not as much as early season as um, you know later in October and and the rut november like whenever y'all's is in june or whatnot (laughs) (laughs) yeah awesome awesome well i was gonna say uh that's a first cool segment we're we're gonna have to get you back on for another uh episode but the the one last thing i want to kind of end on is what would be like your piece of advice for somebody there's again whether this is somebody's been hunting for 10 years and they still haven't put it together or they don't feel like they've been putting it together or is a newer guy kind of getting started and he's, you know, he's spending time in the woods. He's struggling. He's seeing deer, but he's not closing the deal on them. Like, what would be, like, a piece of advice you'd kind of give them in order to something to pay attention to for this season? Pay attention to your access and just soak in information from killers. Like, watch these guys that are, you know, actually going out and putting down these good deer on public consistently every single year. Those are the guys that know what they're doing. Be a sponge. Like, 
100%. I mean, that's what I've done uh, since I feel like 2017 is when it really started clicking for me. You know, I've, I killed some good deer before then, but it was, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Since then, I've just been taking in little tidbits here and there. Find out what works for you and run with it, you know. Yeah. Love it. Awesome. Awesome. Cool. Jacob, thanks for joining us, brother. And, hey, where can guys check out the YouTube channel? Oh, DO3 Outdoors. On YouTube. <laughs> well, I'll tell, I'll tell, yeah. tell the channel name. Uh, you can look at my name. It, it pops up, uh, Jacob Emery, E-M-E-R-Y, or you can search D-O-3 Outdoors. stands for Data 3. got three kids. It's not going to change. we got the old snip snip. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude. Awesome, awesome. Well, appreciate you joining us, and uh, guys, we'll uh, hop to the hop, next one. Hop on to the next one. Thank you. All right, guys, for our next segment, we got the godfather of one sticking, Mr. Greg Staggs. Greg, how are you doing, man? I'm good, buddy. How are you doing? I'm doing great. We were just joking that uh, we've had you on the podcast like three times over the years. (laughs) Never met you in person. I know. This is awesome. (laughs) Here we are. yeah, thank you to the Mobile Hunters Expo and the Southern Show for getting us together. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's why this show's so awesome, man. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I understand we got a little pack set up here we're going to talk about. Uh, what you got, Jacob? I don't know anything about this yeah. at all. Yeah, we're, we're <laughs> going to talk about this uh, real quick. So, uh, Greg, and actually, probably should have looked at before we get Greg on here what the episode number was that we had you on last time. But we yeah. did, did a whole episode with you, or I did a whole episode with you at the Mobile Hunters Expo last year in Ohio talking about one sticking, and we right. had a ton of Really interesting and awesome feedback from it about guys trying to get into it in the deep south. Again, in places that typically you'd use climbers because the trees are so straight, you can climb as high as you want to go. Right. Well, if you want to minimize the weight and still have the the flexibility of a saddle, you can still use wind sticking in that case. And, and I mean, climb pretty much as high as you want to carry some rope to do it. Pretty much so. Yeah, I, I climb a lot of straight trees, but it's nice having the option. If you do encounter a crooked tree, uh, you know, an Osage, anything that's out of the ordinary, that you can get into that too. You're not limited. You're not you're not hunting trees. You're hunting deer. Absolutely. So. Before we get into the pack, because we're going to talk about this as a yep. new, new product that you've kind of, you're launching here uh, at the show for one sticking. Mm-hmm. Real quick, to kind of get us kicked off, uh, we're kind of asking everybody the same question to kind of get us started on, on these different segments. But when you look back at the success that you've had, what do you attribute that success to? And, and what have you kind of put together in order to become more consistently when it comes to the success, especially bow hunting? Yeah, so uh, you know, I, I'm pretty well known for one the, for being a grinder. I'm a guy who I, I'm out there all the time. It, you know, it, it it's pretty well known. I put in over 100 sets a year, year after year. I mean, I've got like 20 years of 100 sets over. And and you discover a lot of things during that time. One is it's just time in the field, right? I mean, you, you know, you put enough time, a blind squirrel's going to find a nut. You know, it, you're going to get it done. But I, I have discovered things along the way. And and one of my favorite philosophies, and I've done some YouTube videos on it, is my edge within an edge philosophy. And we talked about it on the very first first podcast we ever did with you is that edge within an edge and what I mean by that is everyone recognizes that outer edge right where the field meets the wood line that's the outer edge what I'm looking for is the edge within that edge I want to find the cover the breaking point from a train change inside the wood line that that meant that secondary transition that secondary edge is really where I, I hone in and key on and I've killed the bulk of my deer I, I killed my uh the one I killed last year that was kind of kind of got a lot of a lot of press because everyone was pretty much done yeah hunting mm-hmm. and I was still grinding it out you know to my point the first first thing I said I was still grinding it out it was January 15th I was probably on sit number 120 or so now now I say that a lot of people are gonna go well god you gotta be a terrible deer hunter if, if, you, if it takes <laughs> you I pass a lot of deer I mean I yeah. kill a lot of doe you know my family was featured on NBC now years ago with Leslie Gibbons and John Stossel. We, we haven't bought red meat in 28 years. So I haven't, you know, I've supplied all the meat for our family for through bow hunting. I don't gun hunt, I just bow hunt. And so I kill a lot of 
a lot of does, I pass a lot of younger bucks. And uh, I was still still hunting and trying to fill my buck tag on January 15th, and I was sitting one of those interior transition lines. And it's like we were talking about a little, ago, a little bit ago before we started this podcast episode was I was actually hunting a tunnel coming out of a bedding area. I mean, it was so thick. It was briars, and you literally had to get on your hands and knees to go through the tunnel, and that's what that buck emerged out of was, was that. So I, I hone in, and that's been a key to my success is finding those interior edges, edges within edges. That, that's where I really focus on. I, I'm going to be honest. I completely forgot we talked about that when we yeah. had you on, and yeah. that just made so many light bulbs in my head go off. Yeah. Can, can you give us like a like another real-world example of what an edge within an edge would look like? Yeah, so so sometimes you'll you'll find a patch of woods, and it'll be all pines or all hardwoods or whatever, right? Well, where, where that patch ends is is that edge as long as it's in a greater geographic area you know right uh, again i don't i'm not looking for the field edges i'm not looking for where you know the the whole crp field ends with at a cotton field or something that's an edge obviously i want to go into the crp and then find where there's a briar thicket and hunt around that briar thicket right the, if, especially if it's going to be something like you know 20 you know 20 acres or of something or maybe two acres but it's a defined area inside another bit larger geographic area now like how it. does timber clear or cuts come into factory for that as in like interior edges so yeah so obviously that's going to give give old growth versus new growth that's a great example to answer your question andrew is that old growth versus new growth is going to create that edge yep. and and so that's going to be a, a key spot there a lot of times we'll we'll have not necessarily a cut spot but but some spot where just a bunch of trees just died or whatever and and you've got you've got that edge and that's what i'm going to focus on and a lot of times you can you can zero in right there you're going to find a ton of sign that's where your scrape line is going to be that's where your rub line is going to be that's where everything's going to be so yeah mm-hmm. that's what i'm focusing on how long did it take you to figure that out about the edge inside the edge yeah you know what years uh it did because i for i started off sitting the outer edges mm-hmm. and that, that's what everybody wants to focus on because you see a ton of does right there you see that's where the first activity of the day is and, and it's like i can look down that edge i can look down the field line i can see t- 200 yards down there i can see a deer and then i go home and i say hey i saw a deer right yeah. well it, it, <laughs> okay big deal you saw a deer it was 200 yards it, you had you had no chance at it right yeah and so when i started focusing on those inner edges yeah i, I may you know i think dan infall talks about is like he gets into hunts sometimes where he's he may not see a deer for two or three sits, right? And and I I've started I've gravitated towards sitting for those those areas. I may not see a deer for two or three sits, but when I do see one, he's going to be a quality deer. Yeah, oh, I love that. Now, what That's do you th- awesome. What do you think about that kind of habitat and those inner interior edges? What do you think about that makes it so appealing for a buck, especially a mature buck, to use that edge versus like a more defined edge? You'd find a lot more does at. Yeah, I I think. So a couple things. One is I, I think that edge by itself just draws them because they're edge creatures. You know, they're, they're diurnal. They, they follow the edge of day. They follow the edge of night. They're, they're edge creatures by and of themselves. But that edge is something very subtle that they, they kind of go to, and it offers an escape route. It offers cover because where that transition is, a lot of times it's a good food source. The, the lesser of the two edges oftentimes contains good, you know, short green shoots and growth and, and food and things. But they can jump if – Maybe that's on the right, but they take a step to the left, they're instantly dissolved into cover. Mm-hmm. And so they, they've got food, cover, the natural edge drawing c- capacity or capability that draws them to it. They, you know, they've got everything right there. How do you see mature bucks bedding in habitat like that? You know, so we do a lot of shed hunting, and we're not good at it. <laughs> <laughs> but but where we find our biggest sheds is in the thickest cover. I think we talked about that on episode one, too. 
time too is literally where where I would run rabbit dogs uh, and beagles is where I find the biggest buck bedding area at. They will bur bury down in tunnels and, and you will you'll literally be going down a tunnel and all of a sudden you'll see a wide open spot where they bedded down at. I mean it's it's in the middle of the thickest stuff and, and sometimes there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's just in the middle of super thick stuff. And that's what makes it hard, you know, that's why I don't have fifty big bucks on my wall. I've only got, you know, what I've got mm -hmm. because they can they can go exit out of any area. You know, they might have five exit trails out of that bed. And so you've kind of got to guess based on wind direction. You got, you know, I'm big on hunting just off winds. I killed the buck January 15th this last year on a just off wind. If the wind had shifted three degrees, that buck would have nailed me. But it literally stayed, I was probably 15 yards off his exit route, and he, he popped in at 20 yards. That makes sense. That actually reminds me of a spot up in that we're probably going to hunt in January where there's a big cattail marsh. Mm. And it comes to an island, and you got to walk in there, but, I mean, it's far. But you get to it, and that cattail marsh is real thick, but there's, a like, an ancient beaver dam going across right. it. You know, where it's just part of the land now. It's been yep. there for a long time. There's trees growing along it. And so that cattail marsh would be, like, your edge, but then that little bitty beaver dam with the trees, it's just a little bit different. That would be your edge within the edge. And yep. right where it comes out is a tunnel, yep. just like what you exactly. just talked Literally exactly. Literally a tunnel. And I yep. put a camera on it, got all kinds of nice deer, a really, really, yeah, really yeah nice really buck, nice yeah. buck. found three different sheds that all look the same just huge sheds that all look exactly the same from three different years in the right? same spot on that island the yep. island's like two acres yep and buddy i'm going there this january yeah <laughs> we're going <laughs> and, and, and if you can find because a lot of times he won't come out where he's at a disadvantage right yeah if, if you can find it where it's just off where he thinks he's safe but you're covered as long as the wind doesn't shift. And it's a dangerous game to play. Because, but So that's, that's like a you spot can. you'd hunt with a just-off wind. Yes, exactly. I okay. would. Yep. Okay. One last thing before, I know what we, I'm doing. before <laughs> we get to the pack, I want to ask you one other question. How do you take access routes into consideration for some of these edges? Huge, huge. Because I, I used to, you know, I, I'm on, I don't know, year 33 of my hunting career or something like that. My first 20, 25 years, I was, you know, I believed in all the scent control stuff. And, you know, I wore rubber boots religiously. They stayed in a toad. I didn't gas up my vehicle in them, all that stuff. And, and I, t I tell people all the time about this, you know, the scenario where I actually watched a farmer's black lab trail me into my tree. As I, w you know, I'd been doing this for five or six years. I'd never wore those rubber boots everywhere, and I watched him trail me right to my tree. So I lost a lot of uh, a lot of faith in the whole scent control, rubber boot, all that stuff like that. So, but w the one good thing it did is it made me more religious and more conscientious on my entry and exit trails because I've lost a couple good deer. I watched them hit my entry trail out of shooting range, and they turned on a dime and, and left. Uh, so so now I really try to follow, you know, if, if I can follow a creek system, a drainage ditch, anything like that. Now, sometimes when you go way back deep into it, you've got to circle around and almost J-hook like the deer's going to do in his bed to get into your tree because, yeah, that's that's critical. You cannot have him cross your entry trail on the hunt. In. And, and you're going to get one or two good hunts out of that because he's going to hit your exit trail, and you're done. That, that site's you burned it. Interesting. Now, I love it. On, on the flip side, we got to talk about this pack. This new pack you came out with is the Stag Stealth Pack, correct? Yep. yep. Dano named it. I did not name it. <laughs> Dano named it. So don't don't shoot me. Uh, but yeah, it is, it is the Stag Stealth Pack. So for one sticking, anyone that heard the episode, and Andrew, maybe real quick on your can you look up the episode? Yeah, we did I'll with, look it up. Real stags. Quick. Um, the episode we did with you on one sticking was kind of interesting, just because again, just like how how minimum it is or minimal it is in order to climb 
I mean, literally as high as most guys are going to want to climb with a climber, you can have that with this, and you're only carrying one stick. 393. So episode 393. What was the episode uh, name on that? Uh, one sticking like a pro with Greg Stags. Cool. And also another one is uh, episode 129. Dang, that was a while ago. Yeah, it was 2019, a while. DIYing was it? for Public Land Giants with Greg Stags. <laughs> yeah, that's Go the one listen to that. That's the one where we talk a lot about the edges yeah. and, and yeah. getting into rabbit country to, to chase big bucks. Gosh, yeah. that was a while That's when we talked about the giant six-point you killed. Yeah, yeah. 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 It was a 143-inch six on Public Land. Yeah, that's, that's a good deer. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that's a good deer. But with this pack, so what was like the ins- inspiration to this pack and, and the application for this pack specifically? Yeah, so so I'm well known as being like ultra minimalistic, right? I, I really carried my one stick in one hand, my bow in another, and everything else I take with me. If it fits my pockets, I take it. If it doesn't, it doesn't go with me. Mm-hmm. And, and I found just a, a need to take a little bit more. Like like, well, if it starts getting cold enough, that I need a jacket. Okay, what do you do with the jacket? Because now I've got a one stick in one hand, a bow in another. Where do you put the jacket? Because mm-hmm. you know, so so I came out with just a very minimalistic pack. I mean, it is about as small as you can possibly get for a backpack, mm-hmm. and and so I, I made lashing straps on the bottom to carry my to carry the uh, and and we'll show it up here for the camera. Yeah, uh, you you can put the uh, put your jacket your outerwear jacket on here. And I lost a jacket one time on a pack like this with plastic buckles. I actually put cam buckles on here so you can cinch it down as tight as you want to. It will not come off. I use the same concept for the for the one stick as well because those are your two most expensive items that are going to be on your back. And if you're walking in a good distance, going through brush and trees and rubbing, you may lose that and not know it. Yeah. So so the, the 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 straps that cinch down the the one stick are the same way. They're cam buckles, same same on that. So, uh, but the great thing about this pack is obviously we've got a nest, nesting place here for the one stick. It will also, if people are interested, go, man, I love that pack, but I don't use. I'm not a one sticker. I use three sticks. This will hold three sticks as well. Mm-hmm. So, so the nice thing about it. But once you take this pack off your back, you get to the tree, you lay it down. Literally two straps, you undo. And your one sticks off, and now you have two dedicated pockets that the stick has been nesting in. Forty foot of Canyon Elite is in this pocket right now. Mm-hmm. My knee pads are in the other pocket. So everything that you need to climb a tree, you don't have to get into the interior of the pack. Mm-hmm. So that's really nice. So you can take the, put those things on, put the pack back on, and go up the tree, and you're done. Never have to access the inside of it. Everything's got a dedicated place. It's specifically built for one sticking. For you know, there's a lot of packs that go. Well, this would be a great pack for one sticking if you would so choose. Yeah. This was built. I literally have two years invested in this of using different. Pro- this is about prototype number eight for me. Keep shrinking, keep doing things, keep changing, and uh, it'll also for those guys that, are, that say, "Well, will it hold a platform?" I've got a mini seeker in here right now. So yep. if you want to, if you want to go up to uh, climb the tree and then put a, a platform off to the side of your one stick, it'll do that as well. Also, one thing that's really uh, impressive about the pack is there's no zippers. And no zippers whatsoever. The the oh, top flap that. is is held on by by a very strong magnet. Uh, you know that's a one reason why Dano named it the Stealth Pack. It is made here in the United States. Uh, it comes in at a price point of $195, so we wanted to keep it below $200. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can tell you, we don't have a ton of markup. And if you if you've ever manufactured in the U.S., you know how expensive it is. That's why so many people go offshore and go to China. But we wanted to keep it American-made. It's extremely soft fabric, very durable. I've been wearing this fabric for 20 plus years. It's the same fabric that my hunting clothes are made out of, and uh, it's just uh, we're very very happy with it and, uh, and proud proud to uh, sell it through Eastern Woods Outdoor. And I was going to say, That's so it's, awesome. it's going to be on Easterwoods Outdoors website, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. It will. And we're, we're launching it this week. Right. Now, and then I'm guessing probably by the time this podcast comes out within the next couple of weeks, at some point you're going to have a full video review on this on your yes. channel. Yep, mm-hmm. sure will. Now, 
And we're handling it here so people yep. can go watch the video podcast on YouTube to kind of see what we're talking about with it. Yeah, this, all is, this is on video. Yeah, all, we keep forgetting to mention it on the yeah, podcast. Yeah. Also, um, so that, that's awesome. So, again, guys can go uh, watch on YouTube. And, uh, again, probably by this point there's going to be some video reviews out on this. So if you're interested in one sticking, you're interested in, again, becoming more minimalist but still not be limited on how high you can climb and still have the versatility of a saddle where you can climb around, you know, on leaning trees, trees with a lot of branches on it, you can do all that one sticking, which is pretty sure, fascinating. Sure, okay. Now, to – to get to a point of wrapping up, Greg, I've got to ask you, looking back at your decades of experience now bow hunting uh, for, mm-hmm. for whitetails, if someone's out there and they are interested in trying to take their game to the next level, whether it's a newer hunter and they're just trying to become consistent, or if this guy's been hunting 10, 15 years but they still haven't found the consistency with the success, yeah. what would you recommend for them in order to focus on for this year in order to make sure that they are getting their stuff dialed in to start having that success that they can replicate? Yeah, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind just as soon as you asked that question was it's great to be online, listen to YouTube things, and 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 participate in the forums. And yeah. we've all done that for, you know, way more than we can count, right? But there's nothing beats the boots on the ground. Getting out there and actually looking at the hot, fresh sign. I mean, because sign will change. Deer patterns will change. There, I, I bounce around. You know, I hunt public land. I kill a lot of deer, and I kill five, six, seven does a year. And people say, well, gosh, you're, you're impacting the herd that way. I rarely kill more than one deer in each area that I'm hunting and what I found by doing that is sometimes the herd will be in one location the 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 big concentration of deer other times it might be two or three miles they they kind of move and at least where you know because of pressure farming pressure local pressure people coming up from Louisiana I mean we, we get all kinds of public pressure all around and those pressures will impact the herd and the change and so where the deer you found some hot sign this time may not be where they're at where you're going to be and so I really recommend going out there putting boots on the ground find the hot sign and then approach it Pay attention to your entry trail. Pay attention to the wind direction. All those things that we learn, but go put boots on the ground. Go find the sign yourself. Don't rely just on, you know, aerial maps and this. And 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 great great advice on forums is great, but go out there and actually look at it for yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. Great. If anybody wants to watch uh, some of your videos on YouTube, how would they find your channel and kind of you know follow along with what? Yeah. So uh, so stags in the wild is is our YouTube channel, uh, and uh, you know I, I've been on a number of podcasts. So you, you guys, you can look up those episodes mm-hmm. or you can find some stuff there. But stags in the wild is, and then my you can find me on uh, Facebook and then other groups at Greg Stags. Awesome. awesome. Perfect. Greg, thank you for joining us. Yep. Thank you. Welcome back to the next segment with Mr. Rusty Johnson. Rusty, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. Glad to be here. It's oh, a lot dude. of fun. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be here, too. We're sharing a booth with you. Oh, yeah. Not really sharing a booth, but we're back, back to, to back. back. Yeah, yeah, man. We're over here in the cool kids' corner. Yeah, oh, I, yeah. I was like, all, all the redheads are over here. We, Andrew's a little left out. Oh, but, yeah, that's you know, true. Got Hunter, got you, got Russ, and all, you got me too. I'm like, dude, listen, yeah. got, got red hair for days. We don't need blaze horns. That, we, that's we, true. We, we they did. they put all the gingers in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, no, Rusty, super excited to have you on. So for this segment, Kind of like everybody's, the theme of this episode is, is really trying to find out these guys that we're all interviewing, like yourself, who's been on the podcast before a few times now, um, kind of summarizing a little bit of, like, what's helped you become successful when it comes to consistent success. So what would be, like, your take on that, If you know, kind of explaining from your perspective, especially bow hunting, um, you know, what's helped you become consistently successful when you're targeting mature bucks, both, you know, in a couple different states you all hunt in? Yeah, so early on, I was lucky to have a dad that, you know, really taught me a lot early on. So early on, he taught me to know how to read the woods, you know, look for sign, look for small things, stuff like that, learning the terrain. 
you know, I, I'd say learning the terrain, knowing what the food sources are, you know, know how to identify food sources, know how to identify certain trees, you know, stuff like that. That's helped me a lot. Now, with that, so you're kind of talking about woodsmanship, really. Like, yeah. it's just being a well-rounded woodsman, understanding what you're looking at and how it plays into a factor for, you know, whitetails. How has that been able to transfer, like, that knowledge of woodsmanship in order to finding and targeting mature whitetails, especially in the more mountainous areas that y'all hunt? Yeah, I mean, I'm primarily a mountain hunter. So, I mean, you have to, I mean, of course, we locate deer with game cameras a lot, too. So, we, we did a podcast about game cameras. And uh, so, once you locate one i mean you you have to know how they use the terrain i mean you know that he's there that's a big part of the puzzle right there but you need to learn how he uses that terrain uh you know and i mean if you, if you can figure that out you can i mean you can nail him down pretty good yeah now that, well i was gonna say also with the woodsmanship and you're talking about that in the mountains and like again having the woodsmanship the knowledge of the cameras and everything how has that played a factor in understanding the travel patterns of those bucks in that kind of country so <clears throat> cameras are great, and I use them primarily just, just for a location. I mean, locating that buck. It really doesn't have anything to do with how he moves and stuff, in my opinion. I mean, I'll put it on a scrape, you know, on a ridge top or whatever. Most of them are nighttime pictures. I just want to locate him, know he's there. And then once I know he's there, then I can go into trying to figure out a plan on how to kill him. And you, you just have to know how he uses that terrain. But, you know, there's some states where you can't use game cameras, and you have to know, I mean, I primarily use uh, tracks. I go by the track. Of course, I don't know how big his rack is or anything like that, but just from that track, you can know, you know, if it's a mature deer or not. Now, what's a big track for you, by the way? Because uh, I'm taking uh, Andrew's it, question from him. It, it depends on where you're at, okay. you know. I mean, like in the mountains, sometimes it's extremely difficult. I mean, I've been out already several times scouting and stuff. I've only found two tracks, and I'm, I'm talking over several trips that I feel like is a fully mature big buck. I have no idea what his rack size is yet, but I, I do know that, you know, he's big. So in the in the mountains, real quick, where are you finding those tracks? Are you finding them like in a stream bed on a roadside? Because uh, there's not a lot of places where you just got bare, you know, good track, medium or whatever. Roadsides are great for mm -hmm. finding tracks, and and you know just the ditch on a roadside that is great. I don't care what state you're in or what management area you're hunting or whatever. Roadsides are great, but when you get out in the woods, of course, it comes a lot more difficult, and Usually when it rains, like in either a, a drainage or a ditch or something, you know how it kind of washes out and there's a little bit of sandy or a little bit of dirt there, and you have to really look hard, I mean, because they're faint. But those little spots right there, I look for, you know, little crossings and stuff like that and those little spots. And just like the other day, I think I did a story on our Instagram page where, I mean, I walked all day long for hours, and I found this one little spot, and it was kind of down in a pretty steep, ditch and it looked like like a skid like a where you see where one skidded it was right after a rain mm -hmm. and i walked down there and, and you, he had a skid mark and right at the end of it it finally planted i'm like this this is a big one right here <laughs> i mean that's a mature deer and it was one track one track in that one little b spot it's probably a foot by foot so now, i mean it's a, it's a little things now how do you go about if you're looking at a track what are the characteristics of a track that tell you this is a mature buck? I mean, are you measuring the width? Is it the length? What, what are you taking consideration? Uh, their width, length, spread, and on the very ends, if it's really rounded, uh, that's a mature. Uh, if it's really sharp, 
I mean, you can have some big tracks that has a real sharp point on the end of it, and most of the time that's not going to be your mature buck. You look for that rounded end where, where the very end of the hoof is. That was the next thing I was going to ask yep. about was the how worn the hoof is, I guess. Yep, yep. That's, that's a big cool. that's a big factor. Yeah, we're trying we're trying to figure out we we actually were just talking on another podcast about going down to this swampy area in South Alabama and I I killed a buck near this a couple or last year and guts in he weighed 134 pounds as a four and a half year old. Mm-hmm. Just small. You know, like they're small bodied. So a track down there compared to a track like in Kansas or something. Yeah, that's a very, very <laughs> not, different. Not even, close. <laughs> not even close. That's a doe fawn running around. Yeah, yeah. So, so, how, so how when, I, when I'm hunting in Arkansas and then I go to Kansas and hunt, you've got you've got to get your mindset different mm-hmm. because I mean you're it's two completely different animals, mm-hmm. and you know you've got all I've got all this experience in Arkansas, you know, looking for the big track, but in Kansas it is a totally different animal. Yeah. So you're looking for something totally different. Yeah, and do you, so do you. You like to go out and look at just a whole bunch of tracks to kind of start figuring out like what a big track is for the area, or is it kind of predetermined in your it, head? Well, uh, th- I mean, I'm old, y'all know that. I'm I'm 51 years old, so I mean, I've I've spent years and years and years in the woods. And when I was a young kid, my dad is the one that told me how to look for tracks, and we're talking mm-hmm. years of experience. I mean, somebody just starting out or whatever, it would be extremely difficult you know, to mm-hmm. really teach them what to look for. It's, it's just going to take days in the field and a lot of experience to, to determine those tracks. It sounds easy talking talking about it, but it's not easy. It, it's extremely mm-hmm. difficult. Uh, and then the next step, which I know this is like a quick hitter and we could go down a rabbit hole here, <laughs> but, like, when you find that track, like the ter- track you're talking about in Arkansas that you found where you're like, okay, this is a big deer, what is your next step after that mm. to really start keying in on how you how, like how do you go from that to I'm figuring out how to kill this thing? Well, that's a good question, and it also depends on time of year. Mm-hmm. You know, you may you may find a big track in the rut. He may be five miles from there, mm-hmm. but at least it tells you he was in that spot. Most of the time, when you're finding that track, it's fairly fresh. So, I mean, you can correlate. You know, the time of year. I mean, if it's the rut and it's fresh track, uh, you might you may not even be in his area. Yeah. You know, he could have just chased a doe through there or something. But in the summertime, if you find that big track, you're 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 close. I mean, you're really close. And that, that would extend all the way into the pre-rut, you know, up until the rut. If you find a track, I mean, you're, it's going to be fairly close. So you can start yeah. – that. that's where you start looking for terrain features, other kinds of sign. And, you know, as you get into October when they start rubbing and scraping and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and a scrape is another good spot to look for a big track. Once they start laying down scrapes on the ground – you know, they almost always leave a track in there. So, I mean, you can really – I mean, you've got to get down on your hands and knees sometime to really determine what that is. Yeah. You know, scrapes get you really excited because they're fresh, you know, and you know it's a bug, you know, scrape on the ground. But, I mean, I don't know how many areas I've just completely just thrown to the side because of that track not big enough for me. Okay, interesting. Yep. Now, uh, <laughs> what are some common mistakes? Let's say someone's listening to this and they're like, I'm going to go start looking for tracks. What are some common mistakes that someone might make or like a misconception they might have going into looking for tracks, looking at tracks, like some mistake they can avoid? Uh, they're going to be in too big of a hurry. Okay. I mean, they're, they're going to be in way too big of a hurry. You have to really slow down. I mean, I slow way down. And, I'm, and, and a lot of times they won't want to go into those really steep areas. They cross those ditches all the time, and that's where I find these tracks. Most of the time it's not on like a saddle or 
uh, on a ridge top or whatever, there's a lot of leaves and you know ground clutter and stuff like that. I look for those washouts where they're crossing those ditches, and you have to really slow down. I mean, you can walk right by it, and if you don't really, really, really look, you're not going to see it. It's so faint. Also, deal with the tracks. If you find like a truck like this one you just found, is that something you're going to put a trail camera somewhere in that area and try to see what that deer actually looks like right now, or are you going to wait and see if you can find that track later on? No, I'm going I'm to put a camera up somewhere. Okay. And most of the time, I'll make a mock scrape. Like okay. right now, I mean, like last week, I made a lot of mock scrapes. They use them year-round, and that's, that's where you're going to get your picture. That's not necessarily where I'm going to hunt that buck, mm-hmm. but that's where you're going to get that picture. Make a, make a scrape. Now, speaking about mock scrapes, this is a great segue. So tell us a little bit about the uh, the product y'all came out with that, you know, Rustin's been kind of developing for a little while when it comes to making oh, mock yeah. scrapes. Yeah, so you've probably heard of either on our page or, or somewhere the mention of Branch Boss. Uh, my son worked for years and spent many, many, many hours on different formulas trying to come up with an attractant that's synthetic, that's legal in every state, that a deer would be attracted to, and, and he calls it Branch Boss Scrape Juice. So, it's a, I can't tell you what all is in it, but, but I mean, he spent several years and a lot of research and a lot of trial and error, and I helped him with it along the way. And he's come up with something that, I mean, we've already today talked to several guys that are using it and come back and they're like, dude, is that voodoo or what? But, I mean, basically, um, we make mock scrapes with it. We spray it in the overhanging limbs, spray it on the dirt. We clean the dirt out, spray it on the dirt. We've got countless game camera pictures of bucks in full velvet running scrapes in the summertime. Mm-hmm. It's a curiosity scent. All we're wanting to do is bring him in and get a picture of him. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it, it really really does work. Do you find that with those scrapes, it, since it's a curiosity scent, once they come in there, they're like, oh, okay, and they, they work the scrape themselves, that it almost kind of jump starts that scrape and they just kind of start using it on their own? Uh, yeah, I feel like they do. And and in the summertime, they're, they're not pawing the ground out. They're they're just smelling of that stuff in those limbs, mm-hmm. and, and they'll they'll keep coming back. Yeah, yeah. Okay, interesting. I'm always yeah. curious about that because it seems like with mock scrapes, if you get them to start using it, they'll kind of keep it open themselves. Yeah. You know, I also use a lot of existing scrapes. Like right now, mm-hmm. if I if I knew where a primary scrape scrape was, or if I'm walking through there and I see like a big area where I knew they were scraping, I'll go ahead and just use that, you know, and mm-hmm. spray that stuff in those limbs, but. It's not got anything to do, you know, with their mating or sex, you know, orbital glands or nothing like that. It's strictly a curiosity scent that they're attracted to so we can get a picture of them. Yeah. Yeah, that's that, awesome. That's awesome. Real, real quick, Rusty, uh, as we get to the point of kind of wrapping up this segment, talk to me a little bit about if, if there's a – of course, there's listeners out there that we have, whether they're a brand-new, you know, deer hunter, they've been hunting just for a few years, or there's a guy that's been hunting for 10, 15 years, and he, they still haven't figured out how to be consistently successful, especially just hunting bucks, whether it's – they're, you know, they're trying to shoot, you know, whatever buck they can find or they're trying to find mature bucks. What would be a huge piece of advice that you would recommend for them to kind of pay attention to going into this season that hopefully help kickstart that success that they can start replicating? Well, I, I tell a lot of people this, and you have to want it. I mean, you have to want it. If you're – I mean, you can't expect to be consistent killing big bucks if you wait a week before deer season opens and go out there and scout just a little bit and go out there you have to want it you have to put the time in i know a lot of people have full-time jobs they they don't have a lot of time but every spare minute you get if you really want it and go out and spend the time in the woods and really learn the terrain learn the food sources learn the bedding 
if you learn that and immerse yourself in the outdoors and go out and do it and really want it, I feel like you would definitely become more consistent. Awesome. That's, that's what I've did over my lifetime, and it's worked for me. Awesome. 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 By the way, if someone wants to get some Branch Boss, how would they find it? Branchboss.com. Awesome. Website's live. Uh, we got several different things, several different products on there. Um, he's got deodorant. He's got the Branch Boss scrape juice. He's got a couple T-shirts on there, mm-hmm. some bow hangers, uh, you know, several. And, and it's gaining. I mean, we'll have mm-hmm. shampoo. We'll have body soap, stuff like that. Yeah. But it, it's it's gaining ground. And also, if anybody wants some uh, Fireside Apparel, yeah. how they find Looking that? Looking sharp, man. Firesidestore.net. And uh, yes, this this one of our big websites, and it's it's apparel right now, and there's all different designs for the outdoors. We got fishing stuff, uh, mountain biking stuff, hiking, hunting, you know. It's it's basically just t-shirts right now. Yeah, but, awesome. Yeah, cool designs. I got one yeah. on. All the viewers can see. Yeah, it's pretty, look, pretty looks pretty awesome slick. on you. Pretty yeah, slick. and you got the the Bigfoot it's, carrying a, a packing a buck yeah, out. Yeah, this is a brand new one. Rustin just designed this. It's it's an awesome shirt. I, today's the first day of me wearing it. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, perfect. Well, yeah. Rusty, thank you for joining us. Yeah. And, uh, guys, I'll uh, catch you back here on the next segment. Come yeah. on, just a second. All right, up next we got Hunter Hogan. Hunter, what's up, man? What's up, dude? Dude, good to meet you in person, by the way. You're yeah. way taller than I thought you were. <laughs> like, way taller. We had to adjust this camera over here for people watching on YouTube. We had to put it on top of a cooler just to get him on here. <laughs> so he's not looking up his nose. But, yeah. Uh, dude, Hunter, I'm excited to have you on, dude. So we did podcast with you last year. It was a, It was – wildly successful from like a listener standpoint I had a lot of people that were really interested because again finding a young guy who's like learning a skill set and becoming extremely successful hunting you know mature bucks across the country you know you do a lot of stuff you're originally from missouri you live in missouri correct yeah okay. yeah and kind of hunting all the way around there i think last year what states did you kill deer in uh we killed in nebraska kansas uh missouri kentucky illinois yeah crazy yeah. crazy 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 that, and you own your own business yeah. I'm like, dude, I'm like, someone's got to be running operations when you're gone, dude. You're like, we got to figure something out, man. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to juggle it all, but got to figure it out somehow. Well, that's all right. The kick is off, uh, kind of like, the, again, the whole, uh, this part of this kind of series of this episode is talking about success and really kind of pitching it to everybody like yourself of what has made you, especially in the last few years, be as successful as you have, especially when it comes to the consistency, consistency of success as you've traveled as well, being a huge part of it. So, like, what's kind of, you know, come together in order for you to be this – I can't talk. Be as successful <laughs> as you have been. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, really, the more I've been in this industry and stuff and the more people I'm, I'm meeting and everything, I feel like there's a lot of people that have the skill sets that it takes to kill mature deer in about any state. And the only problem that they – come to is they get tunnel vision uh they they find one tactic they find one thing that they may have had success with before and they only stick to that and they don't ever grow um to adapt on especially public land and out of state i mean uh you start hunting in october and november i mean you've got to adapt and move and stay on your toes um if you're going to find big bucks to hunt so um i guess that's my main thing is just just not getting tunnel vision um and staying staying moving until you find a deer that you're wanting to kill i mean i'm i'm a big believer in laying eyes on the deer i I think the whole you know reading sign and and seeing this and that and oh this is a big buck track or oh this is a big buck rub or i mean i've seen i've seen deer with only 110 inches on their head 
that have a really big body and leave a really big track. And then I've seen spikes absolutely tear up a cedar tree that you would swear would be a booner that's, you know, tearing it up. So um, until I lay eyes on the deer and know that that's the quality that I want to shoot um, and I can study that deer mainly from afar. So, so I'm big on laying eyes on the deer and then trying to create an efficient game plan on getting them killed. So the visual aspect is huge for you now. Do trail cameras ever play a factor for you when it comes to laying a visual, or is it always you want to see them in person? Um, there's less and less states you can use trail cameras in now. So, I mean, uh, we can't use them in Missouri, so I kind of grew up hunting without them. Um, I try to use them in the states that I, I can, and I think they're a huge tool, but I personally have not gotten a picture of a deer I've killed yet. So um, huh. I've... I've, <laughs> I try to use them. I, I like using every advantage I can get. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm the type of guy I, I try to shoot the best bow I can, shoot as long range as I can, as efficient as I can on climbing and lightweight and using cameras. I mean, I, I try to use every factor I can to get an edge on a big buck because they're, they're already hard as it is. So um, I do every legal thing I can, but um, I haven't utilized game cameras yet and, and got pictures of a buck that I'm going in to kill, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, also, how much of a factor, you're talking about, like, you know, you want to have a visual of, like, the target buck you're going after. When you're scouting, you know, kind of hunting area, it seems like the areas that you like to strive for are areas where you have that open ground to really be able to, I guess, glass and put visuals on them typically in most situations. I enjoy that kind of terrain. I, I definitely don't stick to it. I mean, I've, I've killed a lot of deer in, like, more of the deeper, bigger timber because that's what most of Missouri is and stuff. Um, I do like the open country because, you know, even if I don't kill that night, I might be able to glass for a long ways and watch deer do their thing. I mean, that's kind of my addiction to this whole deal. I, I enjoy this time of year more than I do hunting. I'm just going out and glassing velvet bucks and finding mature deer in, in the summertime and watching them grow. And now I've got history with, you know, bucks for three, four, five years and stuff. And that's just an awesome part of it for me. So whenever I'm hunting, that's a big part of it, just seeing everything going on and, um, yeah, filming them, getting, getting, you know, pictures and stuff of those deer. It's, it's a huge part of it for me on the visual side. So when it comes to not getting tunnel vision or, or being a, ver- a really versatile hunter where you can just adjust kind of on the fly, what does that look like to you? So like, how do you avoid getting that tunnel vision? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think I think the biggest misconception on on stuff is that um, bucks will always do one thing. I mean, I've, I try to keep up with 10, 15 bucks over the summer and learn their personalities, and I've learned that every single deer has a different personality. And if you look into the university studies that they've been doing on whitetail and stuff, you'll learn that I know deer that will never leave a 200-acre patch and then there's studies of deer with collars on them that literally migrate over 25 miles, which is just, if you think about that in retrospect, that's insane for a whitetail to travel that mm-hmm. far. So um, I know bucks that are like super nomadic, they'll spend a week in one spot, move a half mile, spend a week there, move 200 yards, spend a week there. Um, so I think like a buck's personality, it's just like just like people. I mean, not everybody's a homebody, not everybody's a gypsy, you know. It's yeah. like everybody's different and it's the same deal on on bucks and stuff so i think learning their personality learning what that buck likes his food source how he travels what he does and you know try to find a weak point in his game that you can take advantage of 
um, is kind of how I try to avoid the tunnel vision. I, I can't put all deer under one thing. They're not all going to bed in the same bed. They're not all going to travel the same trail every day. And some of them do, some of them don't. But um, yeah, just trying to learn that deer and figure out what he does specifically and then game plan accordingly. That That's really interesting uh, looking at it from the deer perspective because I've been guilty of that where you like you want answers on stuff, you right. know, like you want like a defined answer. And so you'll find something that's like, his home range is uh, a typical buck's home range is 600 acres or something like that. And you're right. like, okay, got it. And you get a picture of a deer and I'll go like draw a circle on the map or whatever. But right. you're saying like just approach the deer without any preconceptions and right. like let the deer tell you what the deer does, right? Yeah, there's, I mean, so many people now are preaching like mature bucks do this, mature bucks only do that, mature bucks only do this. And it's like, well, it depends on his personality. Yeah, 20% of big bucks will only do that, but you can't just throw them all under that category. And to be honest, that's how most bucks stay alive on public land is because they don't do what everybody thinks that they do. I mean, I kill more deer doing what whitetail aren't supposed to be doing or where they're not supposed to be than they are because all they have to do is avoid pressure. I mean, they don't have to have a certain bedding. They don't have to have a certain food. They'll get by with just the bare minimum of everything as long as there's not people in them. Mm -hmm. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, do you do observation sits even in timber country? Or yeah, I try okay. to. Um, the The thicker timber country, I mean, in the Midwest, we have a lot of like autumn olive and stuff. Mm -hmm. So kind of the thicker stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I'll get intrusive, dude. I mean, I just, if, if I don't have a buck that I've found, I'll get in there and I'll get the wind in my favor and I'll just walk through that stuff. And, and there's been a lot of times I'll jump up a big buck and then, you know, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of podcasts on the bump and dump thing you know but like literally bump a deer out of his bedroom figure out what he's doing in there and then back out it's not like he's never been bumped before on public land mm -hmm. he knows what to do he knows the j-hook he knows to go to his secondary bedding or whatever but i know that buck's there then i can back out study maps look into the area try to figure out where he would go or if he would come back and and start hunting that deer because i know he's there mm -hmm. so i, I want to ask too about how much uh, confidence plays a role in your success because especially for a younger guy the amount of success you've had and just how you speak about this like it's pretty clear that you're like very confident in what you know uh, how much does that have to do do you feel like with actually being able to go out there and execute um it probably appears as confidence but it's really <laughs> it's really more of an open mind i mean i i'm willing to learn from a lot of people i think um, I've got a circle of guys that are just absolute killers and really good at, at getting on deer. I mean, like Jace Allen, Charles Golson, Josh Trollinger, Jeff Rainey, and even my cameraman, Dylan Harriman. I mean, like all those guys know deer so well, and they we've all grown up in different areas, different you know knowledge on what deer do and so whenever I approach a situation, I bounce ideas off of guys. I approach it as a committee and and try to determine what everybody's idea is on it and keep an open mind that way you can really learn something off of each other and i mean when you got when you got that many brains that are that passionate about whitetail you're going to learn a, a lot more than just applying yourself so mm -hmm. i think that's a huge part of it that's awesome, awesome. Oh, one thing i'm curious with <clears throat> with like the visual um perspective of like you're trying to put eyes on a deer before you ever necessarily make a move on if you have the opportunity to do so 
What are you trying to learn if you're glassing a buck? Say it's you know just before season comes in, or it's open se- or it's open season, and you're you're putting eyes on a buck. Say glassing one. What are you trying to learn based off the data you're picking up with your eyes in the situation? What are you trying to learn from that situation of how that buck's using that habitat? What's he doing at that time period that gives you an idea of how you should approach hunting that deer? Yeah. Um, first of all, I spend a lot of time e-scouting. Um, I I think you can learn a lot from maps if you use. I, I mean, I use dang near every app available and, and, like, try to scavenge everything. And Google Maps is so advanced on, like, 3D imaging and stuff now that if you know certain factors that big bucks prefer, you know, you can kind of determine maybe a spot that they'll be or, like, a preferred food source or something. And so, really, whenever I find a buck, I'm trying to confirm what this theory that I've already got made up in my mind on, on maps and stuff. And so... If I get to study a buck from afar, especially for a full evening or even multiple days, if I get to see like where he came from, what he likes bedding in, what he's feeding on that night, where he waters, what what trail he travels, what how he's using the wind. I mean, bucks use wind different ways and stuff. Different bucks use different winds different ways. Um, so if I can study all those things, I can really hone in on all the factors that he's using on that map, go back to my map studies, confirm or deny or add to what I've already got game plan for that area, and then, you know, make a plan of attack from there. Yeah. Also, uh, another thing I've got to ask, did you bring your Kentucky buck down here? I did. Did you? I got to go oh, see that I thing in person. see that. So that that <laughs> yeah. deer is pretty cool because uh, you told the story about that hunt on the podcast. Yeah. But it's just like that photo you had of when you found him in that water. Yeah. That, that shot from behind the antler. Dude. It's like, dude, it's so yeah. epic. That's, yeah. That's crazy. Uh, there's a couple hunts this year, Kentucky and Missouri, both on those whitetail. It was pretty cool because, I mean, we went in for an observation sit, and then we were prepped to kill, and it just so happened to – you know present itself in in missouri the the tree we were in we were 43 foot up in a tree watching from observation and this buck just happened to be bedded a couple hundred yards away and came right on a line underneath us and we got an opportunity to shoot him and we were ready for it but that wasn't the purpose of that sit you know so pretty crazy but by the way what's the shot what's the shot angle like from 43 with a bow (laughs) uh he was at about 45 yards so it was probably a 20 25 degree angle um so you're probably cutting two to four yards yeah yeah so luckily we have range finders that does all that for us <laughs> now but yeah that's a huge part and one thing like probably have to have you back on and talk a little bit more about uh gaining confidence from from an archery perspective to be able to go out and execute under pressure and everything because I've, I've had guys on both sides of the table saying you know tournament archery is some guys say it's great for bow hunting, as in like the pressure situation. Other guys like it's terrible for bow hunting because it doesn't teach you anything that actually relates to like actually in the field. But I see from like the pressure standpoint of like even if you're just shooting at like a bail target, like not even like a, not even three deer or anything. Yeah. Just how much, especially put some money in the line, you know, use some buddies, something like that. Oh yeah. Or actually go do some competitions. How that alone should help you just be able to kind of keep yourself mentally in control during that situation. Because there's so many of us, you know, me and Andrew are guilty of it. Come back with your bow and you're so worked up, and, you know, you get guys here all the time, you hear all the time, and, you know, they looked over their peeps out, they weren't like looking through their peeps out. Just different things happen. Um, and it seems like the more and more you shoot, but also from like a competitive standpoint, you kind of get in your, your groove of things and makes it a lot smoother transition, I think, into like yeah. the high-pressure situations. Yeah, I believe it does nothing but help you. I mean, you learn so much about, like, um, arrow drop, arrow weight, penetration, kinetic energy. Uh, I mean, your draw weight, preferred holding weight, which most people aren't 
don't really know this, but I mean, the main thing on like holding your bow steady and being a good archer is your holding weight. You know, uh, it's not always all about high let off and stuff. I mean, you learn all those little factors that are so applicable in the field and that creates what you're talking about on confidence. That creates a really good confidence of like, if there's a deer in my effective range, like he will die. Like I have no doubt what's going to happen when I draw my bow back and that helps with a lot of things dude your mule deer hunt i cannot remember what state it was in Where yeah the, how much what was the wind speed you think crosswind uh, it was a 35 mile an hour crosswind 60 yard shot Dang, and smoked that yeah. sucker dude yeah. the footage yeah. is unreal yeah it was it was pretty crazy because the arrow was so sideways that it broke the arrow into three different pieces you can see it on the film and that's why the fletching stayed in place place it on him on the side it was actually the back six inches of the arrow from it going in crooked you know but yeah that that one was wild (laughs) is is that something that is is there a way you go about for training for situations like that i mean the average archer they're not going to make that shot but like is there a way from like the competition standpoint is there a way you train for that is it something just from experience you kind of know what to do in that situation oh it's hands down training i mean it's it's each year you know as a tournament archer and target archer you're changing to the newest bow the newest arrow the newest veins the newest broadheads whatever um all these new things to get used to and you got to figure out how that reacts in the wind and stuff i mean um like i i had all my stuff a few years ago with with the arrows i was shooting at that time and and that kind of wind that would have drifted like two foot and with that arrow and that setup that I had this year, I had practice in some crazy winds like that, and it actually only drifted like probably six or seven inches um, in that crazy wind, which still blows my mind to this day. But you just got to go out and test it and figure out what your setup does in those situations because if I would have held two foot off of them off the front shoulder, I would have hit the front shoulder or missed them. You know, I wouldn't have even executed that shot. So I knew where to hold for that wind and that distance and stuff. And as crazy as that sounds, you just got to go out and test it and figure out what works for your stuff. Awesome. Well, yeah. uh, one last point before we kind of uh, wrap up this segment. Uh, what would be, like, your biggest piece of advice for somebody going into this season? You know, if they're trying to put this stuff together, maybe from, like, a, a bow hunting standpoint, what would be something you would advise them to pay attention to and focus on for this season in order to start building some success, you know, over the next coming years? Uh, my biggest thing that – has helped me is go watch bucks in the summer i mean um it's literally a hundred times easier to watch and see bucks in like july and august before season opens and then come september october as we all know they're hard to find i mean it's hard to lay eyes on a deer so go out there when it's easy to see them when they're all bachelored up study what they do what that buck's personality is it's really fun to kind of play detective on each deer and stuff and so if you just study what they do that time of year that'll tell you a lot about your area a lot about your deer and those bucks specifically and and that'll help a lot going in the season awesome well hunter greatly appreciate you joining us man i'm excited to hear your seminar or your your, well you and josh talk about archery hunting 101 out of saddles and see kind of how y'all take that yeah uh tomorrow because again this is friday but uh super excited to have you here glad you made the drive and appreciate you joining us on the podcast yeah i appreciate it guys Houndstooth Game Call's Dixie Hen Slate was just voted the overall best turkey call by Field and Stream Outdoors, and trust me, it's super easy to run and be extremely dynamic when you're in the turkey woods. Now, we've mentioned a couple of these calls in the past, like the Spurmaster and the Success Call in a past episode with both Gary Vines and Lyle Gilbert of Houndstooth Game Calls, and it was funny enough, y'all actually bought every Spurmaster call and Success Call they had. Now, 
pay attention to their website. They're going to have some more come up in stock in the next few days. So when they come available, make sure you get one if you did not purchase one before they sold out last time. Both the Spurmaster and the Success Call are fantastic for hunting high-pressure turkeys, whether you're on a hunting club where you have a lot of other members hunting those same turkeys, or if you're on public land. Again, both of those calls will make you sound a little bit different from everybody else and be a lot more subtle in your calling technique and be able to really help close those distance with those gobblers. So if you want to give Houndstooth Game Calls a try, go to houndstoothgamecalls.com. Use the promo code SOP24. Again, promo code SOP24 for 15% off houndtoothgamecalls.com. True Lock Chokes has been made in Georgia since 1981 and offering a wide range of chokes, over 2,000 different chokes for all kinds of shooting activities. You might be wondering why you'd want to purchase a True Lock Choke and it's to improve your shotgun performance. Absolutely guaranteed. And as a great example, we have Andrew Maxwell here. And uh, Andrew, you've had some pretty good luck, again, kind of switching out chokes and trying out the Precision Hunter choke from True Lock. So, Andrew, what's been your experience so far? Yeah, I've, always, I've used the same choke for several years now. I never really thought much of it, and I got the True Lock choke in. I patterned my gun with the first choke at uh, 30 and 50, and then I switched to the True Lock and changed from 30 to 50. And the 50-yard pattern on my gun with the True Lock choke is unbelievable like everybody's jaws were dropping like when we were out there with mike and sam we were all super impressed i mean it's throwing a better pattern at 50 now than it was throwing at 40 before my old choke and andrew you're shooting the precision hunter choke from true lock it's a great option same chokes i have in my shotgun so guys if you want to give true lock a shot this spring you can head over to truelockchokes.com that's t-r-u L-O-C-K chokes.com. You can also use the promo code Southern at checkout at truelockchokes.com and save 10% on your order. Again, give TrueLock a shot this spring, especially if you're not happy with the performance of your shotgun and shoot with a more deadly pattern with TrueLock. All right, guys, we're back for another segment on this episode. I've got Carl Brown, who's a past podcast guest. Actually, I was just looking at the episode, Carl. You were on back in 2020. It's been a long time. And uh, it was episode uh, 184, yeah. dude. We're on like been a minute. Oh, we're almost like 500 now, 500 <laughs> episodes. So that's ridiculous. But finally got you in here at the Bubble Hunter Expo. You drove all the way from South Carolina, and I want to pitch you the same question I've been asking all these other guys because uh, again, you always have continue. You have uh, consistent success in South Carolina, and I want to ask you what's been a huge factor for you for having consistent success targeting bucks in your home state of South Carolina, especially on that kind of coastal plains area that you like to hunt. I'd say probably the biggest thing that has kept us going and just continually getting on mature deer is being random um just not hunting a place more than once we we see a direct downfall as soon as we go into a place we sit we may see 10 deer may see 20 deer whatever it is um the if we go back the next day it usually turns out to be about half that many we go back the next day it turns out to be about half that and usually if we go back to a place third or fourth day we usually don't see anything um we just keep moving we keep hunting random spots and trying to get into places that other people just don't go we we just try to bounce around and we try to hunt places we don't go i I mean that's kind of the biggest point I guess I'm trying to make is we have the most success going places that we have never been before and we believe nobody else has been either I think I think that's what you're going for well, there and the, the interesting thing about that is it's kind of like the whole term of hunting blind like you're kind of mm-hmm. going to an area that 
maybe you don't have a ton of experience or you haven't been in there in a long time and you're kind of going in that first time and you're, you're killing on that first time in, which kind of goes back to past episodes, like episode 116 with Glenn Solomon. He was like one of the first guys we talked to that talked about this is your first time in is your best time yep. to kill a big buck. And, you know, some guys will talk about, uh, you know, uh, some guys can hunt a buck repeatedly, you know, multiple times and finally kill him that third, fourth, fifth, sixth, uh, sit. Where other guys, kind of like yourself, and a lot of guys I know that, especially hunt public land, are killing them on that very first trip going in. Now, that being said, what is th- what are you taking consideration when you're looking at spots? Like, is it based off past history? Is it based off what you're seeing on the maps? Is it based off like wh- what are certain things that you're looking for in order to like if, if you're going in blind, you're going you know place you've never really been before. What are those factors you're looking for? I am looking for I I, I don't necessarily care about feed trees. Um, I don't care about scrapes, rubs, really. I do, um, but not for picking the spot. I care about those for confirming the spot. I want to find the spot that I want to be. Um, uh, trying to think of how to put it so it makes sense. Um, you kind of get that um, uh, the drive up here, five hour. I, covered a bunch of episodes and, yeah. um, trying to kill time and the uh i think somebody mentioned like spidey sense you get you know when you you kind of find that spot and it kind of becomes a just a sixth sense or something mm-hmm. i guess you you just get into a spot and you just know it's right um and i think there's a lot of things you're actually looking at that you just take for granted after a while and you start getting into a spot and you're like yep i can kill a deer here it's a good place to be the i am looking i don't i don't care about the feed tree i care about the place they have to go through to get to all the feed trees i care about the the bottleneck the funnel and it's not necessarily always a you know, a, a hard funnel that's easy to see. Um, I'm not real big on hunting um, pine flat high ground, mm-hmm. but if I can find a giant wide open C for 600 yard pine flat and there is a strip of wax myrtles that are thick running across it, deer will use it. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, some There's one of the islands that's just real wide open. Um, I don't want to give too much away yeah, about yeah, yeah. it, but um, it, if anybody around there has listened to it, there's only one. Um, the first time I hunted that island, um, got worried about the boat with the tide and everything. Got I found just – I couldn't figure it out. And it was the first one I'd been on. Couldn't really figure out what I was looking at out there. Wasn't a ton of sign that I found in the first um, – I didn't go scout it. I just went out and hunted it. And – couldn't really find much to set up on because it was so wide open but i found a little kind of thick er strip running across it that just offered a little cover wasn't too far from the boat i wasn't sure about the tide we got about an eight to ten foot tide drop up there come out and boat might be (laughs) upside down (laughs) you know hanging from a limb you just don't know so got up there saw a couple deer um and got worried about the tide i ended up getting down about 30 minutes before dark and I usually sit after that drop my bow doe comes through big buck behind him kicks all the air buck kicks the arrows out of my quiver on my bow (laughs) stepped on walk right underneath me um but it it paid off that little that little strip that one little thing um and that's kind of what I'm looking for that that one 
thing that um, something different, something, some reason for deer to go through there. Just a a reason. Um, uh, one of the biggest things I look for is a big swamp, a deep, you know, um, over your boots. Mm. You know, you start getting waist deep, whatnot. A thin spot in that, um, a thin spot in that swamp where say it's 500 yards wide a quarter mile wide but there's a spot where it's only an eighth mile wide they'll use it they they're going to take the driest shortest route they don't want to swim with the gators anymore than i do they uh they, they try to take that easier route most of the time and i mean that's basically what i'm looking for is when i'm scouting you know online looking for something I look for a spot online, uh, it's something that meets, you, that looks like a good spot, a little, you know, a little different, couple, couple things coming together, a little, um, you know, just a difference in the line of trees, or um, uh, I look for a lot of, even the um, hardwoods, look, I look for a thin spot in the hardwoods where it's a little thinner in one spot, because I know usually those big old growth hardwoods are going to be a little more open underneath them. Mm-hmm. And if it's, um, it looks like the trees are younger on either side and there's a thin spot on it, they'll usually, you probably getting a little more growth coming in on that, uh, that narrower spot where it's a shorter distance across that open spot. Mm-hmm. Anything like that, anything like that really. And, I really use my hunts to scout more than I put boots on the ground anymore. Um, we've had so much success with going in blind and dropping into spots and the first time being that it's almost kind of kept me from scouting. Um, I, I don't want to go in there, and we were talking about this a little while ago. With, um, we tend to not see deer again. Um big mature bucks if we spook them they seem to leave the area they're just we never see them again um even even when we don't spook them just it seems like um just putting pressure in there getting your scent in there they just never come back um so we've tried to kind of step away from that and get back into doing what we were doing before where we had more encounters with big bucks and more encounters period with deer and that is just go jump in go go jump in a spot it, what's the difference in going around walking around a uh, say it's you know a, a 10 acre area you're looking at you know there's an area on a on a satellite map you're looking at and it's 10 20 30 acres what's the difference in going and walking around it and going and sitting in it mm-hmm. just go hunt go get go jump up in there and you're going to learn something, but we've also seen a direct um, difference between going in blind in the dark and going in in the afternoons in the daylight. Going in in the dark, I have found that when I do see deer, they're underneath. They're usually within 10, 20 yards. When I go in in the afternoon and I can walk around and look and try to figure out where I think the deer should be, mm-hmm. I usually see them at a farther distance, 40, 50 yards, or out of range, 100 yards. Um, but in the mornings, they're almost almost every big buck I've killed in the morning has been 
10, 20 yard shot or shooting them straight down beneath me mm-hmm. versus the afternoons where we have time to look at it. And I think when you're walking in with a, you know, a, a low level light in the morning, you are, you can't see past that next bush. And neither can that deer. That deer doesn't stand up on his back legs and look over the bush and decide, you know, it looks better over there. I should. Get. And I think you just kind of end up finding, um, following the routes the deer take a little more because they just see what's in front of their face uh, is the only thing I can figure with it. But we definitely see a difference on being closer to where the deer are going in in the dark versus in the afternoon. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And, uh, I'm going to say this right now. Listeners, be prepared because we're going to have Carl back on for a full-length episode. We're going to talk a lot more about that. I want to get you on for a full episode. Um, and one thing you mentioned uh, before kind of wrapping up, you, you mentioned the idea of, like, in some of these areas, like these big pine flats. And the example you gave where, you know, you might have a – it's wide over 600 yards, but you have, like, this uh, strip of wax myrtles going through there. That's the same concept in those deer traveling those wax myrtles. Same concept as guys out west, or say out west, like in Kansas, uh, Oklahoma, Nebraska, hunting fence rows. You got wide open fields, and you got brushy fence row, and all those deer run that brushy fence row. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like same concept, but instead of wide open fields, you get big open pines, and then the only thick cover is that little strip of wax murals going through there. That's that's something I think a lot of people can pay attention to, especially in flatland. And I think we'll talk about that more in a future episode. But uh, Carl, to get to a point of wrapping up on this segment, I want to ask you for guys that are going out. And uh, two different examples, whether it's a listener, he's only been hunting four or five years, he really hasn't had much success when it comes to whitetail hunting, especially trimming try target bucks, or maybe the guy's been hunting 10, 15 years, but he hasn't had the consistent success year over year targeting and hunting bucks, whether he's trying to kill a mature buck or just killing bucks in general. What would be something you would tell them to pay attention to going into this season in order to help them build some confidence in order to start having that success targeting bucks in their own area? If you're not killing big bucks or not having in shouldn't say killing i consider it a win just to have an encounter to see one that's honestly good enough for (laughs) for me um if you're not doing that if you're not consistently and i say consistently um i don't see a big buck every time i go out i i struggle through certain parts of the year um i hate and love the rut the rut is great for seeing deer if you happen to be where they are when they're chasing around but all the stuff you learn is out the window because they're all over the place when it does happen ours is real sporadic but when it does happen it's it's kind of a crapshoot i think but if you're not seeing big bucks and you're not having encounters with them you're not killing big bucks you need to do something different you can't keep doing the same thing and expect a different result. Go somewhere new. Go just get up in a tree. So walk into somewhere blind. I promise it will help you. Go in in the dark. Pick an area on a map and walk in in the dark and just get up in a tree and set up. You may not be on top of them, but you're going to learn. And if you hunt, whether it be pine, swamp, whatever it is, and you don't see a deer or you don't see a big buck, you don't do what you're trying to do, go do something different that afternoon. Walk, and don't walk back out to your truck and eat lunch and, and hang out for four hours and then go back in and hunt for two. Walk a mile or two 
and look where you're walking. Um, that the scouting we do now is mostly in between our our morning sit and our afternoon sit, and we just pick the farthest place we're willing to go in a direction we haven't been and we cover that ground while we're and if we find some sometimes you don't quite make it where you were planning on going and you just find something you need to sit and if you do jump up in it or mark it down and come back later but don't come back tomorrow come back next year or a month from now give it a little time if you if you walk through it don't come back we we found places that uh man we get in there and it's never the same again it just never it, it takes years for it to come back and um we deal with some real isolated places with the islands and stuff and it, it's i think maybe a little different environment than other places but um get just get somewhere new and if you hunt swamp in the morning, go to the pines in the afternoon or vice versa. Go, you know, if you're hunting, you know, <laughs> trying to find white oaks or whatever it is you're doing, do something different. Keep moving, keep changing, keep until you start figuring something out. If you if you keep moving, keep changing, promise something will change. You're, it may be better, it may be worse, but at least you know. And then do something different after that. It, it will get better. I used to fall when I was younger. I didn't kill deer for the first 15 years I hunted. And I I used to hunt the places that I thought deer should be. They were pretty. I wanted to be able to see. Um, if you're having trouble getting on deer, if you can see more than 30 yards around your tree, you're probably not in the right spot. There's places now I hunt where I can see a little more, but... I'm sitting over something that I can't see and I may be able to see out in another area, but where I'm hunting, usually I can't see a whole lot around my gra- around my tree and I've got potholes to shoot in. But every time, I, every time I get suckered to those super pretty spots and it's like, man, there's gotta be deer here. They just, they just have to be, it's too pretty. I regret it every time and I should have been on, I should have been up in thick stuff. And I've also found, since I swapped to the saddle um, versus the climber, I see deer on one side of the tree versus the other. Um, In the climber, I used to see almost every single deer I saw came to me. Now they're almost all behind me. And it has to do with which way the tree leans. We can get into that a different time. It's a longer story, but uh, we have seen a direct change from – me and Pat that hunts with me all the time, we've seen a direct change on which side of the tree we see the deer because of how thick it is and which way the tree leans towards the light. Fascinating. Well, we're going to come out in another episode, but, Carl, appreciate you joining us. Appreciate you joining us. Yes, up. sir. Uh, and, guys, uh, make sure you, you stay tuned for the next segment on this podcast. So, appreciate you all joining us. All right, guys, next on the podcast, we got Joe Miles from Osseo Gear on the podcast. And, Joe, I'm really interested because you're from South Carolina. I've followed yep. you for a long time. You're always consistent in South Carolina on Mature Bucks. What has been one of the biggest factors for you specifically on the consistent success of targeting mature whitetails in your home state of South Carolina? Yeah, I I think, you know, the simple answer to that is having access to properties that have deer, and that's, you know, that's oversimplified. But but really, when you have the access, the way that you're consistently killing them is – 
absolutely obsessing over the stuff you can control. Uh, understanding your bow, understanding your arrow, I mean, really getting into the micro details of everything you can control. And if you obsess over that and you have the access, it, it's a recipe for success. Interesting. Okay. The access, man, the access thing keeps coming up with well, almost I mean, everybody we've had. If, if they're to. not there, you can't kill them. Yeah. And, and you know, we, we talk about this all the time is that, you know, I've got three farms in South Carolina that I can hunt. But I don't just sleep on that. I can lose one tomorrow. So every day I'm riding around, I'm looking, there's a for sale sign up. Hmm, what's going on there? wonder if I could get in there for sale. wonder if I could get in there and hunt. So you have to constantly be looking for new property. You can never have enough. I mean, I got, I got a little 40-acre track that was an old development that's this right outside of town. It, kinda, it actually butts up into town. And I've shot three over 120 in South Carolina right there on 40 acres in town that I can just about throw a football from my office and, and hit it. But, and I just stumbled onto that property and asked the guy if I could hunt it. So, I mean, you know, obviously everybody goes, duh, access is, is the key to have deer to hunt. But, but if you're not obsessing over everything, like this mobile show we're at right now, I mean, there's a bunch of killers here and there's a bunch of high-speed gear here. You know, yeah. and, and you need to understand, you know, I bought a saddle. Well, great. Well, have you climbed up in the tree and shot your bow out of it? And can you shoot it as good as you can in a lock-on? Or, or are you just getting on this bro deal and wanting to be a saddle hunter, you know, or whatever? I'm not yeah. obviously not bashing saddle hunters, but, but you, whatever it is that you're using, you have to obsess over it and always ask the why. Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? And I'm sure you guys get the same thing from a lot of different people. But that, that's, my, that's my thing. And, and I think what I do a little bit different is that, I, I mean, I will look at the tread on my boots because if, if it's going to hold mud on a frosty morning and I'm in a lock-on and I turn and the mud comes out of the so, – so that's just mm. something that, that obsess about. The attention to detail. That, it, w- yeah. Without a doubt. And, and those are all things you can control. You don't have to be a great hunter to control all your gear and all your equipment. Where am I putting my trail cameras? When am I putting my, what kind of trail camera am I using? Am I using it because Jim Bob told me to? Or have I gotten four or five different ones and put them over like where hogs come in during the summer and see which one actually transmits the best? In, in my, you know, I got a big canopy in my swamp. Yeah. So, you know, is AT&T working better? Is Verizon working better? I mean, and you, if you do that with every piece of gear you have, you're, you're, you're once again stacking the deck in your favor. What do you think is one of the most overlooked pieces of gear that guys overlook that don't really you know, focus on and it maybe bites them in the butt later on? I, I think actually shooting. I, I see so many guys, and, and there are some killers that, that, that are out there, and I won't name any names, Don Higgins, that never <laughs> shoot their bows. I mean, they shoot them four times a year, and, I mean, they kill giant deer. Mm-hmm. And, and they're, I see them, and they're in the backyard, you know, with the flip-flops on, and they're shooting 10 arrows, and, you know, maybe it's every day. But are they putting their gear on, and are they climbing 20 feet up in a tree in the woods, taking their tar- taking the time to take their targets into shooting lanes and drawing their bow back and holding it for a minute and then picking a target and shooting it? That's the kind of stuff you got to do if you want to really take it to another level. That's a good point, and that actually, I think, bit me in the butt this past year. Now, part of it was like a little bit of buck fever, but some of it also was me having kind of a weird shot angle on a big buck when I was rifle hunting out of the saddle. And looking back, it occurred to me that I'd never been in that situation before until I had a 140-inch deer in front of me, Yeah, like the biggest deer I've ever shot at in Alabama. 
and I didn't get that buck. Needless right. to say, <laughs> but but you know it's it. You, there gets there, there's a line that you can cross where you're too obsessive, I guess, mm-hmm. and, and it, it starts running my wife crazy. She's like, "All right, come inside. This, this is enough." <laughs> so there there is a line there. I mean, it's we're we're not NFL athletes getting paid millions of dollars to perform, but if you if you do kind of take that mindset. You know, to, to to be a pro, if you will, mm-hmm. um, it, it, it'll make you better. Yeah. Let me ask you this, because I was talking to Hunter Hogan about this in his seminar he had earlier. What what do you think, is there any value for competition archery when it comes to being more consistent with your equipment when it comes to bow hunting? 100%. But because when you're even if you're shooting with buddies, you know, you see so many guys shoot by themselves, and you go to a competition, the pressure's on, your heart rate's elevated. I got 15 people looking at me trying to zip one through – you know, this, this little hole for the whatever, for to win the bow or whatever it is. But, but again, I really think you ha- – I mean, 3D shooting is great, but as tree stand bow hunters, how much ground shooting are we doing? Man, everything we're doing is, is elevated, and it's a difference. You know, when, you, when you've got collars and you've got uh, your chest harnesses on with your binos and you've got to bend down and shoot like this and you've never done it before until that – 140 walks by mm-hmm. and you clip something and you shoot it right over his back and you've put all that work in again these are things you can control anything you can control if you maximize it that it's going to stack the deck in your favor yeah and one thing you brought which i, I mean i've dealt with many a times and i think a lot of people overlooked it is the idea of those muddy boots and getting on that platform whether you're shadow hunting whether you're in a tree stand whatever and later on in the morning, especially when it thaws and it starts falling off, or even pine bark, you get on pine tree and you don't clear off the bottom of your platform or your stand or whatever, and you get pine, you know, pieces of pine bark sitting there on that platform. You go to stand or move, you hit it, you crunch it, it falls off, hits the ground. That's one more thing that could potentially alert that buck when he comes in. Murphy's Law, man. If it can go wrong. I mean, I, it, it, you know, it's the old limb. I always say it's the saw limb thing. You know, you left your limb saw in the truck. You've climbed up, you got everything set, and you look and you go, eh, I can probably bend under that and shoot, and out you climb. No, climb your butt down, go to the truck, get the saw, come back, climb back up, cut the limb. If you don't, it's going to bite you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Now, another thing, when it comes to, like, equipment and gear, I think a lot of guys kind of overlook the whole aspect of being, I guess, um, fluent in, in putting their gear up, especially if you are mobile hunting. If you got pre-hung sets, it's another thing. And making sure, like you said, everything's taken care of so you don't have to worry about anything when the time arises. And also probably going back, and this is a good thing for a lot of our private land listeners, is the idea of don't just trim your lanes once, but make sure you go check it before season and make sure nothing else is about limbs falling over, you know, dropping over the canopy where it's covering up a huge shooting lane. And the first time you go in there, like, well, what the heck? Because you yeah. neglect it the whole time. So it's really like from the private land aspect, doing your due diligence on making sure everything's set up correctly so when season gets here, it's turnkey ready for you. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Yep. Now, also, another thing that I think is interesting, talk about in um, South Carolina where you're hunting in these mature bucks. I'm, I'm curious, and this is a little, you know, sidetrack. Have you learned any kind of pattern, seen any kind of pattern with how those whitetails in South Carolina with where you're hunting, how they act at certain times of year? Because I know you have success early season, during the rut, even later in the season. How do you go about keeping up with those whitetails on those farms throughout the season, and how do they act based off some of the other states that you hunt? So it's South Carolina is tough. You know, August 15th, our season opens, rifle season. It, it goes until January 1st. You can shoot five bucks. So it's, it's very tough. The advantage that I have early season is it's 100 degrees and 80% humidity and nobody wants to hunt. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're like everywhere else, they're bachelor grouped up, especially that early. So that is a really, I won't say easy time, but that's a good time to kill them. 
and then when you start getting into hunting season, it starts to cool off, the rut starts, the rifle hunters get out. And I'm sure you guys hear this a lot too, but the, the hunters are so patternable. I mean, I, I've told this story a bunch of times, but I'll, I mean, if I go to a new club, like we have hunt clubs, oh, yeah. I'll go in and just listen to what everybody else does. And this is what they do. They come to the gate, they open the gate, they bang the chain on the gate, they drive into the home site, they get on their four-wheeler, they brrrm before daylight, they go out until 9, they brrrm and drive back to the home site, they go home, and they repeat the process in the afternoon. So if you're going to hunt on the weekends, then I'm a 9.45 a.m. hunter to 2 p.m. hunter. You know, during the rut. Mm-hmm. And then most everything is – we have some bow hunters, but most of the guys are rifle hunters. And it, because we're so flat and it's cut over, you can actually do a macro look of where these food plots and where these stands are and, and where the roads are, where the home sites are, and you can create funnels because those big deer funnel – I mean, like, like you know, like one farm might have a fenced-in five-acre duck pond, and then there'll be a food plot over here. And if you look at that from – you know, an aerial, all right, well, he's not going to go in that food plot. He can't go in that duck pond. So that's how you create funnels in that real flat area is you got to really look high. And it, it may just be one little pinch. And if you go there, there'll be old historic rubs where they come through to avoid all the hunters and all those other things. Fascinating. Awesome. Andrew, you got anything else? No, nah, man. I want to wrap it up with a final question. While you, you got some guys taking this, some This reminds down. me of uh, NWTF where they started taking apart our <laughs> podcast booth while we were recording. We're like, stop, we're almost yeah, done. Hard hat. <laughs> the guys did not care. Uh, so the last thing I want to ask you, Joe, is if, if a guy going out for this season, whether he's been hunting three or four years, hasn't had the this, this success yet, or he's been hunting 10, 15 years and hasn't had the consistent success targeting mature whitetails, what would you recommend for them to pay attention to yep. and focus on for this season to hopefully replicate some success going forward? The, the biggest factor to not killing deer is human intrusion, as I picked on Don earlier, but that's something he always preaches as human, and it's, it's just pressure, yep. right? That's what it is. So my, my suggestion would be not everybody has a early season farm. Not everybody has a rut farm. Not everybody has a late season farm, right? You've got access to a certain piece of property. If that property is more conducive for funnel rut hunting, then stay out of their early season. Stay out of their late season. And I know you want to go hunt. Well, go blow some public up or something else. But if your honey hole is you've got 50 acres of beans and a little piece of woods and that's going to be an early season spot, then you kill one early and you're going you're not going to waste your time during the rut because that's not a rut property. So take things into context. You know, got everything's on the internet now and on Instagram and Facebook and there's tip after tip after tip. You got to take all that into context. Mm-hmm. If your property or where you have access to hunt is not conducive of that type stuff you're watching like bed hunting, well nothing beds on me. So so why would you why would you try and find a bed just stay out of there, hunt early season if that's what it's set up for. So look at your property and figure out what your property is set up for in context and then focus on that time of the year to hunt and then stay out of there so you're not overpressuring the property. Awesome. That would be my advice. Awesome. Nice. Joe, Love it. appreciate you joining us, man. Yeah, it's been awesome talking to you. Yeah. We're going to have to give you on for, get you on for a, few, uh, a future episode because I want to talk to you in more details about hunting South Carolina. It's always a state that's fascinating to me. Hard deer hunting. There's some killers over there, but, man, there's a lot of hunting pressure. Yeah, I think oh, yeah. for interesting yeah. episodes. So I appreciate you joining us. Awesome, boys. Enjoyed it. Yeah, Thanks buddy. so much. All right, guys. Next on the podcast, we got Rendell Eric from our the great state of Iowa. Rendell was a 
great help for me the first year. Actually, both years I've been to Iowa right now. And a good buddy of ours. And, Randall, I'm really excited to get you on the podcast and ask you some of these questions because, dude, you killed some monster whitetails. You're originally from Tennessee, moved to Iowa. Yep. We may talk about that in just a second. But real quick, starting off asking everybody the same question, what is, when, what's been one of the biggest factors for you when it comes to consistent success on mature whitetails, getting on mature whitetails for you, especially after you've moved out to the Midwest? Uh, what's been some of those bigger factors for you? So the biggest factor for me is diversity. I'm not one trick ponying any hunting style. I'm gathering a bunch of different things I like from different guys and adding them to my own system but I'm not jumping out of my system to do anyone else's system. I'm just picking mine because uh, my dad was a big fisherman and consistency is a key. And you might have a guy that's like a jig guy, crankbait mm-hmm. guy, and he might win every now and again, but he's not consistent. He's like the home run hitter. Mm-hmm. So I learned from that. So I want to be good at hill country, marsh, farmland, mixed ag. So I'm putting myself in uncomfortable situations all the time Postseason scouting's uh, huge for me because mm-hmm. I'll go in, I'll scout these areas that, you know, newer terrains mm-hmm. that I don't quite understand just to see, like, okay, I noticed a pattern, like all these scrapes are in these certain areas or they're rubbing here. You know, why is that? Mm-hmm. you got to always be asking why. You never want to stop learning. If you stop learning, you're like you failed, you know what I mean? And then it's a year-round system, so you have to move with the deer too, so – you're wanting to get summer scouting too. Mm-hmm. So postseason, I'm going in looking for bedding areas because you can see the fresh beds, kind of the sign. You gotta, but you can't just go pick out a bed. You gotta look at the hair length. Like a shorter hair length will be an earlier season bed, and maybe it's under some leaf litter. So the leaves fell on this bed and the hairs underneath. So that's telling me early, mm-hmm. and because you gotta decipher for the like rut beds, late season beds. So a bed's just not a bed, mm-hmm. and you got to find a bed that a mature buck wants to be in. It's one of those beds where you just, I sit in them, <laughs> and you're like, how in the hell am I ever going to kill this deer? Light bulb should go off, yeah. and you should start f- focusing on that, and I find as many as I possibly can through, I mean, I'll drive four hours in Iowa and just scout, and then you want to back that up with summer scouting which a lot of guys aren't big on but i like to go in and check water levels secondary food sources what kind of browse available crop rotation should change on you i find that a lot of my big bucks are on corn especially in iowa because it opens october Mm -hmm. the beans are already brown man those bucks are gone unless there's corn with the beans like it's got like half and half or a quarter three quarters or whatever but it seems like when there's corn there all the mature bucks really moving. I think they use it as like horizontal security cover because they can get in there and hide because it's kind of opened out in Iowa. Yeah. So it just gives them more cover. They can run. And then in-season scouting, man, going, looking for the fresh sign and not relying on trail cameras. If you hit hot sign that, oh, I want to put a cell cam or a regular camera here to see what size buck's hitting this, You should be hunting that instead of relying on the camera to tell you. Because when that camera gets that buck, you just missed your chance because he's probably going to pick up your scent because you were just there. Mm -hmm. And he's probably not coming in that area or he's going to change his pattern a little bit. Mm -hmm. So you got to kind of watch out for that. I'd rather sit that and hunt that and not know. you got to rely on your woodsmanship to be like decipher the sign to see if, okay, a mature buck. You know, and it takes you a few years to get experience to do that. 
And then you got to move with the deer early season. You can't, to me, you can't hunt beds all year. Mm -hmm. Early season, you're on bedding pattern. Right when they get into the rut a little bit through trail cam data, they might, some bucks might hang in there to like, eh, maybe like the 4th of November, 6th maybe. Then they're gone, man. You got to switch wheels. Go full rut hunt, man. <laughs> like totally abandon like your target buck and just go hunt funnels, pinch points, transition lines, downwind doe bedding. Anything that's like a typical rut hunt. You can hunt some like, I don't know, some overlook stuff too in there. But And then when that transitions out to like late season, man, you just got to get any food, man. Whatever you can freaking find that like We've CRP, learned. man. Yeah, we learned. CRP, big key. Anywhere that still has cover that hasn't got knocked down or died off and it has food, which they got to eat. Yep. And I would say the colder the better. If it's below zero, you need to be in the woods hunting. Three days this past December, I hunted in negative 35 degrees for three days straight. Insane. Like, it was so cold, I wore all my late-season gear in, and I was sweating. And I was sweating ice. Like, right when the sweat would come off me, it turned to ice. It's God. almost like I was oh hailing them as I'm walking through the woods. Oh and then I'm like, I'm insane for trying this. But <laughs> I really wanted to push the gear I was running to check it out, you know. So that's key, like, moving with the deer, always be scouting, always be learning. And don't. And another thing is, don't take someone's word for something. If you see something and it sounds cool, go in the woods before season. Go check it out. See if it has merit or not. And you're like, yeah, that doesn't work for me. And like another thing, like my no balls, no bucks thing. Don't be afraid to try some crazy stuff, man. Because you got the old junk fisherman, you know. Yeah. He's just piecing crap together, and he might come up with like a string or a fish, doing all kinds of random stuff. So, I hunt really low all the time. Like I'm hardly ever above like 12 feet. Mm -hmm. So I love that. And then hunting right by parking lots, roads, whatever, man. Or you got to go get in there and cross water, like up big, steep ravines, hills. Like terrain will separate you, too. So you got to be willing to put in the work. Well, I wanna, I've been always wanted to ask you this on the podcast. What was the biggest transition for you when you moved from – because you, you moved from Tennessee to Iowa, right? Yeah. What was the biggest transition for you when you first moved from Tennessee to Iowa? And how long did it take you to start kind of figuring out what those deer were doing out there? So um, the biggest transition was it's more open to me anyways. Less less cover. It's more open. You got more CRP, more ag. Trying to figure out just like how the deer move, where their uh, bedding habits are. And another thing is body size will throw you off huge. Like if you're looking at a 300-pound buck, man, you're like, oh, man, that buck's massive. But he might be only a small eight-pointer and it might be something you might not want it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So adjusting the body size, weather conditions, way colder. So getting used to that and just learning, like, how the deer live in all those different terrains. Because I was a lot more diverse than what people think. Mm -hmm. And just, yeah, man, just throwing stuff at the wall. <laughs> <laughs> See what sticks. Yeah, but it yeah. didn't, I don't know, it took me about a year. Yeah. Now, I, I want to ask you this. For, so going into this season, if, if guys are going out, whether they've only been hunting three or four years and they haven't really had that, you know, that success yet for mature bucks, or the guy's been hunting 10, 15 years and hasn't had the consistent success. You know, he's looked up a few times, killed a few deer, but he hasn't had the consistent success of killing or getting all mature bucks. What would you recommend them to focus on and pay attention to this season to hopefully be able to replicate some of that success going forward? Hunt early. That's the best chance, in my opinion, to kill a mature deer. If you want to narrow in on one buck that you found, he's going bed to food, bed to food. And that's it. You just got to get in between. It sounds easy, but it's not as easy. Uh, I would suggest coming up early. If you're just showing up 
hunting season, I think you're not doing the due diligence. You're paying like $700 for the tag. You're camping or getting a cabin. And you wait. You waited five or six years. When you're waiting, you should be in Iowa scouting. And if you don't want to hunt public, try to get free permission, talk to farmers, build relationships. And don't ask guys for, like, spots, just, like, generalized areas, what they do. And come up, look for all the access ahead of time. Postseason scout, look at crop rotation. And then the year you're going to think you're going to draw, come up and hammer it really hard postseason, see what they did. And you'll be ahead of the game because you're like, okay, this is going to be corn next year. And I had a couple of young bucks three years ago, and they still they live gun season. So my thing is just traveling. You're spending all that money anyway, so you might as well get your money's worth. If you truly want to kill a giant and put the odds in your favor, you need to be scouting way ahead of time. Awesome. Randall, nice. greatly appreciate you joining us on the podcast, man. That was a great segment. And, uh, again, best luck to you this year. I'm a little excited to hear from you about this early season Mulder tag you got. So, yeah, man. It's going to be awesome. Uh, ought to be pretty interesting. Hunting full-time this year. Absolutely, dude. Congratulations, bro. Yeah, I appreciate it. Awesome. Last but not least, we got Rustin. Johnston. How's it going, guys? Dude, What's I'm, up, man? I'm excited to have you on. Listen, this is like the second time I've seen you in person now, dude. And, yeah. uh, dude, I'm excited because not only had some branch boss, I'm about to use the crap out when yeah. we about to hammer down on yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. yeah buddy. <laughs> but we got the secret juice, man. That's I'm right. excited It's for available real. right now. Absolutely. And what was the website? Branchbossgear.com. Yeah. Love it, dude. Yep. Nice. So, they kind of jump into this episode, again, kind of round us out. I want to talk to you. Everybody's getting the exact same questions. I want yep. to know. What's been one of the biggest factors for you for consistent success of the last few years on mature bucks, especially in like your home state of Arkansas, but also even trying to travel around a little bit? Okay. So really the past few years, uh, every buck that I've killed has been a little bit different, and I haven't relied on the previous year's kill to validate what I'm doing for the next year. So I'm always open to learning new things. I'm always talking to other people uh, that are successful, and I'm learning what they did uh, and how I can replicate that with my own scenarios. Because, you know, I get a lot of big bucks on camera, but trying to peg down which one I want to go after and which one I want to hunt can be challenging when you've got your hand in so many pots. But uh, I try to match my scenarios with other people that are successful and try to replicate that. And it's it's worked for me for several years in a row. I've, I've been able to connect on a really good buck in Arkansas. That, that seems like a huge factor because, like, man, I don't even know how many talk, people I've talked to this weekend. It's been crazy. But I, one thing that's kept coming up is being able to be flexible and uh, kind of assess each situation for what it is yeah. because a lot of times, and I'm, like, the world's worst about this, I'm, like, trying to make the deer do something that I want the deer to do. <laughs> yeah, or you've seen a deer do it before, so yeah. you're like, well, it has to do it this time. Yeah, and I'm yeah. like, oh, it has to work, you know, yeah. and then I end up pigeonholing myself. And yeah. so you're saying, like, one of the keys for you has been to basically just stay fluid, you know, kind of like yeah, what Hunter Hogan told us. Yeah, because every deer is a complete individual. I've never seen the same buck do the exact same thing with the exact same patterns. They're all individuals, and you got to adapt to that. Just because you had success on one buck uh, that was doing a particular thing doesn't mean it's going to work for the next one. You might learn something off of your experience, but if there's different variables that are happening in that hunt, you need to be able to uh, adapt to that and and be able to change what you're doing to match what the what the buck's doing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, okay. it's also it's kind of interesting, like they kind of different like you said like every buck you've killed the last few years they've all been slightly different in the different situations and to me it kind of comes back down to be like a versatile whitetail hunter as well and have the versatility that you're not just a one-trick pony 
Yeah. Like, it's like, again, every situation is slightly different, and you've got to be able to kind of, you know, manipulate your situation, your yeah. approach, and everything, because every buck's slightly different. They all live yeah. in slightly different areas. They use the area slightly different. They're not always consistent. And, and confidence is absolutely key, but you can't think that you always haven't figured out because they're always going to be one step ahead. You can't, you can't always think that you know what's going to happen because you don't. I mean, so, there's people that's been doing it a long time, and they'll tell you the same thing that you, you don't know what they're really going to do. Well, yeah. l- let me ask you this. For, for the guys kind of going out, uh, going into the season, you know, whether they've been hunting for, you know, three or four years or they've been hunting for 10 to 15 years and they just haven't been able to have the consistent success year over year for hunting yeah. mature bucks, what would be something that you tell them to pay attention to, to focus on for this season, to hopefully be able to kind of get out of that rut and, and really be in the zone? So I would say, first and foremost, you need to try to network with the guys that are already doing it. Try to reach out on Facebook, Instagram, whatever. The good thing about this kind of lifestyle is a lot of the people are really generous with how they approach uh, answering questions online. And uh, the, the social media, for one thing, has opened up the doors so you can talk to someone in Georgia, Alabama, Ohio, get their perspective on what you're doing. And there's a lot of – we were talking about uh, – the same thing earlier at this expo. I was talking to a guy in uh, northern Georgia, and we were talking about similar terrain types, and we were getting to talking, and we basically said the same things that we were seeing uh, in my mountains and in his mountains. So if you can find those guys uh, that are doing it, you need to you need to go to them and, and ask for their help, and most of the time they will help. Yeah, it's been amazing, especially after doing the podcast, how many guys are willing to share. Because growing up, I always thought it was like, you know, guys were so closed off, and there are some people like that. But what we've sure, come yeah. to realize is, especially in this environment, people are willing to share because it seems like they get some enjoyment when someone uses something they talked about. If they and feel like they help. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Dude. And there's a camaraderie aspect to it. Absolutely. Too, you know, yeah. like you're, you're out here and you're talking hunting with your buddies. Yeah. You know, it's something you think about so much and you get to come to a place like this and share it. There's something fun about that. Yeah, you know? that's right. All right. Yeah. You, you getting pretty excited for this season? Oh, dude. I'm, <laughs> I'm you got some yeah. good ones? Yeah. I'm, I'm, <laughs> oh, dude, I'm stoked. <laughs> so we didn't draw for Kansas this year, which is killing me because we've got like multiple 200-inch top deer on public found and we cannot even touch them uh, and it's just and kansas banned trail cameras this year so that's a big punch in the gut but uh we're gonna find some good stuff and i've already found some really good stuff in arkansas so mm-hmm. i'm I've, I've excited about that been using that branch ball scrape uh spray yeah and buddy. they're hitting it in velvet and it's it's awesome. awesome. Yeah. Cool. I'm putting that out next week, dude. Yeah, we got a little yeah. box of it Be back prepared. Here. Be prepared when you check that camera. You don't know what's going to pop up uh, on that. Yeah. I'm excited. I know and Andrew, yeah. it'll be coming with his cell camera. She's like, I'll, I'll burn some data right now yeah. in the summer just to see what's going oh, on. Oh, 100%. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 100%. Biggest thing for me is you got to – you got to take control of the, va- the variables that are within your control, mm-hmm. and I feel like that scrape spray just adds another another tick to that list that you can you can control. So why not give them a reason to to get in front of your camera and then get them on camera so you know what to do with them? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Rustin, greatly appreciate you joining us for the podcast. Listeners, appreciate y'all listening. And uh, dude, we're gonna have to have you and your dad back on at some point. I, I know. Them. Schedule it up, and yeah. I'll do it. Yeah, I'll tell I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, driving up there. We're gonna do it in person. I'm yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. We'll have a good time. Yeah. 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 Have a couple beers, man. It'll be a good time. Yeah, or several. Let's not lie. Yeah, no, yeah. I say it on every podcast. And like, yeah, yeah, by the time we do the podcast, you know, we're a few deep. You done had a few. Absolutely. But awesome. Appreciate everybody joining us for this podcast and this video. And appreciate it, man. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you.
All right, guys, we're starting to get kind of close to summer here. And you know what my favorite part about summer is? The Mobile Hunters Expo. Y'all heard us talk about it a lot last year, and we actually got to meet a lot of you guys at that expo. Well, we're excited to announce we're going to be there again. This time it's going to be in Dalton, Georgia, June 28th through June 30th. We are going to be there all three days. We're going to have a bunch of past podcast guests there. We're going to have a booth where you can come by and grab some merchandise. And I'm sure we're going to be recording all kinds of podcasts there. If you're unfamiliar, the Mobile Hunters Expo is the place you need to be if you are the kind of hunter that listens to this podcast this show was literally made for you it is an excellent group of people that are going to be there a lot of whitetail killers from around the southeast are going to be there you're going to get to talk to them shake their hand learn from them in person make some connections and guys we get a lot of questions about hey, which saddle should i get which tree stand should i get what about this piece of gear what about that piece of gear how do I meet other hunters who want to hunt the same way that I do? You know, finding a good hunting buddy. The Mobile Hunters Expo is a place for all of that. So you guys don't miss it. June 28th through the 30th, Dalton, Georgia. We'll see you there.